Well, for one last time, I'll say thank you very much for the invitation that you extended to me a while back to come out here and speak to you uh, for this uh, part of a week. I've really appreciated it and really enjoyed it. Uh, this is pretty close to home for me. I grew up just on a farm just north of Moralton. Uh, and so, but my mother's family is all from this exact part of, of Arkansas, from Plummerville. Lavelle Walker, who wrote in the Democrat Gazette for many years, the Plummerville section. Every now and then you may have seen her rambunctious grandchild, Matthew, that would be me in, in, in the flesh, uh, doing something crazy, and she'd always write about it for the whole town to know about, the whole state to know about. It's a big paper. Um, but I'm thankful for, for the memories that I, that I had and that I cultivated uh, around these parts. Uh, but this congregation in particular is also special to me. I don't know how many of you uh, were around then or remember then, but it was, oh, 2002-ish, early 2003. Um, you had me here a few times, and I would stand right here where I'm standing right now, but I was a little bit thinner, and all of this was up here, and I preached uh, a handful of sermons on some Sunday nights, a couple Wednesday nights, and you just you just handed it over to me, and you just let me flop like a like a fish on land until I started to figure out what I was doing halfway and then you shuffled me up to preaching school to learn the rest uh, but you you provided me countless encouragement and wonderful uh, opportunities to hone and to practice and to get better and to make mistakes in a loving environment where you could just say it's okay just do it again I remember one time I stopped halfway through and I said let me start over and you just let me start over and you know I don't, I don't you don't get that grace anymore I'm gonna have to give it to you the first try this time but uh, I'm thankful, very much thankful, for all that you've given me over the years. And so I'm thankful to have the chance to come back here and preach to you once more. And I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the end of the book of Mark, in particular Mark chapter 16. We're going to start in just a moment in verse number 14. Mark 16, starting in just a second, in verse number 14. I said this to just a few of you as you were walking out last night, that sermon this uh, evening would be a little bit different uh, so I hope you'll give me a little bit of leeway. Uh, it won't be quite exactly like perhaps the, the way the sermons were the past several nights. Uh, I'm going to take you back to the Bible, as I've done all week long, but I'm also going to take you back to school, in particular grammar class. So I'm going to give you the gospel, but I'm also going to give you a little bit of grammar. I think it's very important to know what words mean so that we can understand the words that we're reading as we open up and read the Word of God. But before I give you the verse that we're going to focus most of our attention on, I want to start with you in verse 14. The, to the topic we're going to consider this evening is the Great Commission. It is the message that Jesus left to his apostles to go carry on in his stead as he is about to ascend. To set the stage, you have to remember that Jesus for three years has been teaching and preaching, and for three years his disciples have been following not leading, following. They've been behind him like little ducklings. They've been sitting quietly. They, they would talk a lot, but they would usually only talk when they were alone with the, with the master. When it was the master's time to teach and he had crowds sometimes of thousands around him, the apostles kept their mouths shut. They were there to listen too. They weren't there to lead. They weren't there to take the initiative that was for Jesus to do. For three years, Jesus taught. For three years, Jesus preached. For three years, Jesus said a message which you could best summarize in the phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he elaborated on that kingdom in sermon and in parable form all throughout his ministry. And now, after three years, he's about to ascend. But the message must still be preached. In fact, it is even better than ever now because now that message has attached to it the opportunity for salvation. That which was only talked about as a 
eventual promise to be fulfilled is now an opportunity to be enjoyed in the immediate moment. But it's not going to be for Jesus to preach that message anymore. His time on earth as a preacher is done. And now he looks at the group in front of him, 11 apostles. There once were 12, but then Judas went his own place. Now there are 11. Soon again there will be 12 when Matthias joins the group and Paul will come a little bit later. They will all have the same message though. The message which is going to be distilled down into one statement that Jesus delivers to them here. This is not Jesus telling his apostles what they need to do to be saved. This is Jesus telling his apostles what they need to go tell the world that it needs to do to be saved. Now, in that context, as we consider the Great Commission, you probably have heard sermons about the Great Commission, about the last words of Jesus before he ascends. And usually, if that is going to focus from the book of Mark, probably those sermons have started in verse 15. But I don't know why, because verse 14 is where the context begins. Verse 14 is what helps us to understand why Jesus says exactly what he says in this text, exactly why he chooses the words he chooses. So let's begin in Mark 16, verse 14. Afterward, he, that's Jesus, appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and he, my Bible says, upbraided them, he rebuked them, in fact, with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Jesus appears to his eleven. He, in fact, appeared multiple times to them. But here, as Mark condenses the story and he's wrapping up his uh, portion of the gospel narrative, he tells it like this, Jesus appeared to the eleven when they were there eating a meal and he rebuked them and rebuked them sternly because they did not believe. They heard reports, they heard message, they heard the news from some amazing faithful women and from others as well who said, we have seen the Lord, he is risen. And they said, too good to be true. It's too good to believe. I don't believe it. It's not that they didn't want to believe, they couldn't they couldn't fathom something as amazing as that, despite the fact that for three years he had told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered, I'm going to be crucified, and after three days I will rise again. They heard it, they heard it, they heard it, and then when it finally happened and he was dead, they said, well, I guess we're just going to go back to being fishermen. And when they said, no, he lives, they said, oh, someone has stolen the body, we don't know where it is. He is risen, and they did not believe. They did not believe the good news. It was too good to be true. So he has to scold them while he is there in the flesh for them to see just how wrong they were, that the good news was just true. Then he says, now that you've seen it and now that you believe, and if I was just to add on to this, what John says in his book, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet will believe. He now says to them who have seen and believed, now you go into all the world and you preach that good news. My Bible says gospel. That's the meaning of the word. You go deliver that good news. What good news, Jesus? The good news that you didn't believe when you first heard it, but now you see it and know it. Now you take that good news that I live and you preach it to the world, many of whom will have never seen me, but you convince them. You give them the evidence of your eyewitness account. You give them the evidence by the miracles that I'm going to endow you to do. He tells those apostles, you go and you deliver that good news that just five minutes ago you did not believe, but now you do believe. You go preach that message to the world so that they may believe. You go deliver that message. You go and preach the good news to everybody. Mark 16 now, verse 16. He, he, an indicative 
pronoun he is me he is you he is every man or woman who has ever in this context heard the gospel preached to them now if you want to zoom out and expand that a little bit more you certainly can he is the whole world he is the whole world because he jesus died for the whole world john 3 16 for god so loved not just this person or that person but for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life but in this context, he tells his disciples, you go preach the gospel, and whoever hears that gospel, he who hears that gospel, he, that, a demonstrative pronoun, he, that, that, takes this group of people who have heard the message that you're supposed to go preach, and it singles out a specific group from that number. Why are we singling them out? Because as we'll see in the rest of this verse, this group is going to do something in contrast to those who are going to not do something. But here in the first part of this, it is he that believeth. A verb denoting continuous action. A verb. So it's an action thing you must do. But it's not just a one-time action. It's not the person who has believed, and if they don't believe anymore, it's no big deal because they did it the one time and they checked the box, no. In the old Bible, mine, it says, he that believeth. And it, it, even in the original language, it carries with it the connotation of a continuous action. It is a thing which is done, and it must continue to be done. And if it ever stops being done, then you stop being in obedience to the word that must be done, the verb that must be done. Now, what does this verb mean, believeth? It means to have joyful trust conjoined, linked in, inseparably with a willingness to obey. It is not, this word, is not the idea of having a thought in one's head, having a, 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 an understanding of a fact. That's not all that's baked into it. Because the devils also have a thought in their head and an understanding of the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And the, the demons also understand that God is, and yet they tremble. They don't, re, they don't rejoice. They tremble. They're not blessed. James chapter 2. It is not just having an understanding of something. It is rather having a joyful trust in something, a joyful rejoicing trust in something, a commitment to something to the extent that you will do whatever that one in whom you have committed tells you to do. The best poster child for this idea is Abraham. And the best illustration of that, which you can read in great detail in your own time because it'll take too much of ours tonight, is Romans chapter 4 where Paul lays out the point of Abraham as a man who believed God and he was put on his account that he was righteous. Well, in what way did Abraham believe God? And specifically, when God told Abraham that you will have a son, despite the fact that he was very old, despite the fact that his wife was very old, and the fact that his wife was very much barren and unable to have children, by no natural means could she have a child, yet by the power of God she would, because he promised Abraham that she would. And Abraham believed God, and then came Isaac. And yet Isaac did not just miraculously appear. Abraham had faith and Isaac was born, but not by faith only. Abraham had to put his faith into practice. He had to believe that God would fulfill his end of the bargain. And so he went out and acted. That's joyful trust conjoined with a willingness to believe. You want another example? And I'll come back to this one in a minute. It would be Naaman from 2 Kings 5. Now we're bookending our whole series together because I started with Naaman back on Sunday morning in Bible class. Here's a man who had leprosy. He was doomed to die. He was a condemned man. He had no shot. He had no chance. There was no cure for the disease that struck his body. Naaman was going to die of leprosy. But then he hears word from Elisha, God's prophet, that if you will go down to the river Jordan and dip seven times, you'll be healed. And he, you might even argue, rightly 
says that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. What can the River Jordan possibly do for me? There are better and more beautiful and more clean rivers where I'm from in Syria. I've got to go all the way down to your muddy Judean waters. Why have I got to go there? I'll tell you why, because God told you to. It's not about you, it's about God. You have to have joyful trust in God. You have to have a willingness to obey God. You have to have a commitment to God. If you you keep committing to yourself, then you'll keep doing what you want to do. Listen, we're not talking about leprosy now. We're talking about sin. You have committed to yourself. You've done what you wanted to do, and where has it gotten you? Into the ditch of sin, where you will stay forevermore unless you take God's advice on how to get out. You must commit yourself to Him and be willing to do whatever He tells you to do. That's he that believeth. You've got to keep on having that commitment. Believeth. He that believeth and a conjunction linking two ideas together. Linking, in this case, believeth. And linking with that something else we're going to read in just a second. This is not optional. It's not or. It's not if you want to. It's not if it feels good to you. It's not if you're pressured to do so. It's you must do this and you must do that as well. Whatever that is, we'll find out in a second. But the and there tells you it's not an option. It's just as important, just as authoritative as the believing. He that believeth and is a verb that denotes a state of being, someone who is in the process or is fulfilling something or is having done something. He is going to be able to say, I once was like this and now I'm like that and I crossed over a threshold. I accomplished a task. I did a thing. I was this, now I am, is this. He that believeth and is baptized. A past tense verb describing one who has been buried in water. Now, how do I know that it's being buried in water? Because if you go to the Webster's Dictionary and you look up the word baptize or baptism or baptizing or some variation of the word, you'll get a lot of definitions. Here's the problem with Webster's Dictionary. And I mean no disrespect to Daniel or Miriam or any other Webster's, but you don't find meaning in a dictionary. That's not why they're written. You don't find meaning in a dictionary. You find usage. You find meaning in context. And I'll prove it to you with the word Cool. If I say Steve is cool, let's all just pretend. If I say Steve <laughs> is cool, and let's say you're a foreigner, you don't know. You don't know the English language, or at least and it's not a first language to you, it's a second language to you. And you hear me say Steve is cool, what are you going to think? Well, I don't know what that word means. So you go to the dictionary and you look it up. And you say, cool, definition one, a person who is mildly cold. Definition two, a person who is mildly popular. And you look at Steve and you think... <laughs> Well, I don't know. Is he mildly cool and mildly popular? So you need more from me to know which of it it is. If I say Steve is cool, he's wearing a leather jacket. Wait, that doesn't help because he could be both still then. If I say he's cool, he's wearing a leather jacket, he's got sunglasses on, and women are just flocking to him and laughing at his every joke and hanging at his every word, now you think, aha, he's mildly popular. Now you have gone to the dictionary to find all the possibilities that word could mean. You have found all the different ways that we use that word, and thanks to context, Words around the word, you've determined which of those to use. That's context. That's meaning. You don't get that in a dictionary. You find in the dictionary definition of baptism all kinds of words. You find it means to pour water on someone's head. You find it means to sprinkle water on someone's face. You find it means to dip someone in water. Even in the New Testament itself, there are different contexts for the word. Jesus describes the suffering of the crucifixion that he's about to endure as a baptism of suffering. To tell James and John, you're not ready for this baptism I'm about to be baptized with. The suffering, overwhelming suffering. Context determines how we use a word. Listen, if enough people use the word baptism to mean 
standing in a pool of water whistling Dixie, then the Webster's Dictionary would have to put that in as a definition. You don't find meaning in a dictionary. So you get the usage from context. What is the Bible's context for the word Jesus uses? Well, remember, Jesus is not inviting the disciples to obey the gospel. He's giving them the message to preach. So let's hear the way they use that word in their preaching. In Acts 2, Peter, who was there, preaches to the disciple or preaches to the audience of, of Jews from Jerusalem in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And he tells them, among other things, you need to repent and be baptized. Well, he having heard Jesus tell him what to preach, now he's preaching it, so he's going to use it in the same context. Just a few chapters later, a disciple who will become a Christian soon after that account is a man named Philip who will meet a, uh, an Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Damascus, or on the road to um, uh, Ethiopia, I should say, and he, having talked to him about the gospel, will tell him what he needs to do to obey the gospel. He'll pull his chariot over and he'll say, See, here is water. What's stopping me from being baptized? And Philip will say, if you believe, you may be baptized. Where do you think he heard that recipe for salvation? If you believe, you may be baptized. He heard it from the people who heard it from Jesus. Here in the text that we're studying. And they went both down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. They both went into the water. You don't need to go into the water if you're just going to splash water on someone's face. You don't need to go in the water if you're just going to pour water on someone's head. You don't need to go in the water if you're just going to whistle Dixie. But if you want to dip someone in the water, if you want to submerge someone in the water, you've got to get in the water with them. And even the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 equates baptism to a burial. Context tells you the meaning of the word and the way it is used in the Great Commission. He that believeth and is baptized, he that believeth and is dipped in water. Now here's where you might say, well, that sounds ridiculous. I know, right, Naaman? It does, doesn't it? Good thing he didn't stick on that point and say, you know what, it is ridiculous, but I will choose to trust God to do the impossible even with this ridiculous thing. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds to me like it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, 1 Corinthians 2. It has always been in the modus operandi of God to tell you to do something that was for his good pleasure, not yours. Because you didn't come up with salvation. You came up with sinning. God came up with the plan to save you. So trust God to do it his way, not your way. Because your way puts you in the ditch. His way will get you out. Your way made all kinds of sense to you. And where did it end you up in? The ditch. His way makes all kinds of sense to him. Makes no sense on earth. Makes all kinds of sense in heaven. So do what he tells you to do. I don't care if it doesn't make sense. I'm glad it doesn't make sense. Because if it made perfect sense to you, you'd talk yourself into it as if it was your idea. Imagine if God said this to you. He that believes and climbs the tallest mountain, fights the angriest bear, and plants his flag on the summit shall be saved. I'll bet you there would be people who would grab their flag, they'd start trudging up that hill, and they would fight that bear, and some of them would win, and some of them would die trying, but they would put a great effort into doing it, but some of them would win. They'd fight that bear, they'd defeat that bear, they'd plant that flag. You know what they'd say? They'd say, look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. Look what I did. You owe me, God. You owe me. You're in my debt now. Because I did this amazing thing. Look how great I am. Look, look at an amazing person I am. I'm on this mountain top. I'm so special. Give me salvation. That's not how it goes. Your salvation is by grace, not by works. And someone hears that and says, oh, how can you say that? When you say someone has to be baptized, you're telling them they've got to work. No, being baptized is not a work in the way you're using the word work. As a matter of fact, when you're baptized, you don't do anything. You stand there and someone else dips you in the water. You just do this. 
and someone does all the work for you. It is a pure and pure and pure act of submission. You are yielding yourself to someone else. You're handing yourself over to someone else. Ideally, ultimately to God, but in the very specific act of it, to the guy who's doing the dipping. You're just standing there letting it happen. You're not doing anything. I, I have encountered people and I've talked with people about this and you would not believe or perhaps you would. The number of times when they'll say to me, I can't believe you're saying this because you're telling people they've got to work their way to heaven. And then they'll say, you don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. And I agree, you don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. But God's not talking about earning. God's talking about obeying. Amen. Earning is I've come, and I've come up with it. Obeying is God came up with it. I've got to do what he says. That's why I'm turning to God. I'm submitting to him, obeying him. So do what he says to do. But people get hung up on that and they'll say, well, I don't think you should have to do anything. Okay, I always say right after that, well, then what do you need to do to be saved? Well, all you got to do is, hold on. I thought you said we don't have to do anything. Well, you, well, all you got to do is believe. Well, that's a thing I do. It's more of a thing I do than being baptized because I have to actively choose to believe. But being baptized, I just submit to it. It's more of a work to believe than it is to be baptized. Amen. And yet people will say, well, you got to believe, but you don't have to be baptized. Well, Jesus said, and. So let's do both. Amen. He that believeth and is baptized shall, a linking verb indicating certainty. God is making a promise. Now, I can make a promise and I'll do my best to keep it, but I've let people down. You've made promises, whether you mean to or not, you've broken some hearts, you've let people down, but God has never made a promise that he didn't keep. God has never made a vow that he didn't hold himself to. In fact, if he ever did break his word, he'd cease to be God in the first place. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, has promised them, promised to the world before it began. God has given you the hope of eternal life. God has promised you the opportunity is yours to have eternal life. And if you will do what he says here, you will have what he promised there. And if you do what you are told to do, he will not say, oh, deal's off. You will get it. You shall get it. He that believeth and is baptized shall be a linking verb pointing to a state of being shall be what part of a verbal phrase to describe a state of existence what is the verbal phrase connected to i must do something believe and be baptized and if i do that something jesus says i shall be saved Amen. a noun denoting a state of being what does saved mean it means i'm bought with blood 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. You didn't bribe God. You didn't buy God off. You didn't buy the devil off either. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, who was a lamb without blemish and without spot. Listen, the whole reason Jesus is even able to say, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, is because he's already paid the price for your salvation. He's already shed his blood. It's not your blood. It's not mine. He's paid the price. He shed his blood. He endured three years on this earth, hated along the way, all along the way. He endured hours of agony before, during, and after the cross, being buried in a grave that didn't even belong to him. And then, as a result of all that he endured, only then, later, then, was he resurrected, then, to reign as a king. Everything up to that point was as far from being a king as you could be. He was the lowliest servant, enduring the most humiliating disgraces, but he did it all for you, shedding his very lifeblood, the most pure and sinless blood there ever was, so that your blood could be made spotless and clean. That's what your salvation is. It means your transgressions are forgiven. Hebrews 2, 
1 through 3. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have seen and heard. Listen, any time we let them slip. Because if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience deserves a just recompense of reward, I want to slow down because I get to going fast when I get excited. Listen to what the writer's saying there. He's identifying the fact that every transgression you've ever committed has earned, you want to talk about earning? It's earned you a one-way ticket to hell. Every transgression has earned you a right to endure the judgment of God, a just recompense and reward. You do the crime, you will get the time. You do the work of sin, you will get the payment of God's justice. So knowing that, how shall we escape? If we, my Bible says, neglect, if we let pass on by, if we hear and do not obey, if we hear and do not take into our hearts, if we hear and don't do anything about so great salvation, if we neglect it, that which was first spoken by the Lord and afterwards spoken by them that heard him. Hey, that's Mark 16. They heard the good news and they at first didn't believe it. Now they do. So he says, go preach it. Go deliver that good news so that those who hear it won't neglect it, but will believe it and obey it. It means your past is forgotten. Psalm 51, 10 through 12. David having sinned with Bathsheba, which is only the scratching the surface of it. Sinned with Bathsheba, got a man drunk, sent a man out to die, covered up the death. There's a whole long list of sins that King David committed. But at the end of which, when his heart was broken and his penance kicked in, he begged God in a prayer saying, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with your free spirit. That's what I want. I want my mistakes wiped away. I want my transgressions taken away. I don't want to be held accountable. Listen to how selfish this sounds. I don't want to be held accountable for the bad things that I did. I cannot go to any earthly judge and say, I know I did those things, but don't punish me. It's his job to bang the gavel and to send me to my punishment. It's his job to enforce the idea that if I do the crime, I should get the time. And yet I have the privilege, thanks to what Jesus has done for me, I have the privilege to go to Jesus and say, I did that crime, but I don't want to do the time. And he has the amazing right by his sacrificial life, death and resurrection, to say, Okay, you don't have to. I'll suffer for you. I'll die instead of you. And you can live with me in spite of yourself. Listen, you will have always been a sinner. I don't care how good and faithful a Christian you are, and I hope you are as good and faithful as you can be. But sin is in your past. You can't change what you have done. You will always have been a sinner. But when you die and judgment day comes, and you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, if you have been faithful unto death in spite of your past, your past washed off the record book, it has been done. And I guarantee you the accuser, the old wicked devil, will stand up on judgment day, the, the lawyer on the other side of the court, and he will say, how can you let him in? Don't you know on this date he did that sin? And it will be true on that date you did that sin. And the devil knows it's true because he's the one who tempted you to do it. And he will bring it up and the judge will listen to the other lawyer on your side of the court, Jesus the Advocate Christ. And he will say, yes, he did that sin. I've already paid the price for it. Amen. And he'll say that about every single one of yours and my sins. And then judgment will be sound and the judge will say, enter in, he's not guilty. But, but he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved but a conjunction that contrasts two ideas. Idea one 
If you believe and you're baptized, you shall be saved. Idea two, but he, an indicative pronoun identifying a person. In this context, the one who hears the gospel, but the first one who heard the gospel did something about it. He believed and he baptized in obedience to it. So this is a contrast. This person hears the gospel. He, that, we're identifying a person in this group. We're separating a person from that group. Over here is this side. He that believes and is baptized. Over here is this side. He that believeth. Same word, same context. One who ought to have joyful trust that compels him to obey. One who ought to have a commitment to Christ in this context that would motivate to do whatever he says to do. He that believeth not. A modifying adverb. What is it modifying? Believeth. This person does not believe. This person here does not believe. This person here heard the gospel that you delivered to them. And they chose to commit themselves in trusting of the one who would obey by their obedience who would wash away their sins. And so they obeyed the command to be baptized. But this person simply did not. They did not trust that Jesus would do it. They were like the alternate version of Naaman's story. Unlike what actually happened, they're this alternate reality where Naaman heard the message of Elisha the prophet, had the leprosy, was condemned to die with leprosy, heard the ridiculous command, be dipped seven times in the river Jordan, and said, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't believe that will work. I don't believe that will help. I've got better ideas. I've got better ways to do it. I've heard someone else with something that sounds more my style, so I'm not going to do that. I'll go my own way. And he would have died because he wasn't told to do it his own way. He was told to do it God's way. Amen. He did not believe, and so he did not obey. So you take this message of the good news that Jesus rose, and you deliver it to the hearts and minds of everyone you meet. And you cannot control how they'll react to it. Some of them will believe that message, and they will obey that message, and they will be baptized. In so doing, they will reenact Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Romans chapter 6. And some will say, that's ridiculous. I shouldn't have to. Someone else has told me not to. Someone else who said it wasn't important or that it didn't matter or I can do it some other way in some other time for some other reason, so I'm not going to do it. Well, okay, that's your choice. He that believeth not shall, that's a linking verb indicating certainty. Something's going to happen. As a matter of fact, in context, it's something that's already on course to happen. What Jesus is offering you is a chance to jump ship before it sinks what Jesus is offering you is a chance to get off the train before it crashes. What Jesus is offering you is a chance, a last second, last ditch, last moment reprieve from the death you're already dying, from the crash that's already coming. One way or another, you're doomed because you sinned. You stained your soul and you're not going to undo that. On your own, that's it for you. And yet in spite of all that, God has said, here is a second chance. Now you can either take it or you can keep on dying. Naaman, this is your second chance. You can either take it or you can keep on being condemned of leprosy. To me, this is your second chance. You can either take it or you can keep on dying in your sin. He that believeth not shall. God's making a promise to you and God cannot lie. In fact, it is impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6.18. So whatever he says, take it to the bank, shall be a linking verb pointing to a state of being. What state of being? the state you already are in when you first hear the gospel. The news is first bad. Bad news, you've sinned. Bad news, God knows. Bad news, Jesus is coming. But good news, if you obey him before he gets here, he'll come to collect you, not condemn you. But if you don't obey him, he that believeth not shall be 
condemned. A noun denoting a state of being, the state in which you already are. What does it mean? It means shackled to sin. Acts 8, 22 and 23. Philip converts a whole village of Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, at the beginning of the chapter. Among them is a man named Simon, who used to be a con artist, used to use sleight of hand and what we would call modern day magic tricks to convince people he had some miraculous power. He hears the gospel. Simon himself believed and was baptized, Acts 8, 13. So here's a man who believed and was baptized. I believe I read somewhere, if you believe and you're baptized, you'll be saved. So Simon believed and was baptized. Therefore, according to Jesus, Simon was saved. But later on, here comes Peter and John. They start working miracles. They start performing these wondrous acts to the people. And Simon says, hey, that sounds like a good way to make some money. How about I give you a little bit of money and you give me the power to work miracles and to pass miracles on to other people. We might have something cooking here. And Peter says to him, shame on you. How dare you? Now you've done something wrong. Acts 8, 22, repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds, shackles, of iniquity. Brother Simon, Christian Simon, having believed and been baptized and all your past misdeeds done away, now here you have fallen back into old habits, a crime for which we are all guilty from time to time. You've fallen back into old habits, and if you don't change, if you don't repent, if you don't turn back to the Christ who has just forgiven you, you will be condemned. I was condemned, then I was saved. Yes, you can be condemned again because you are right now, before you repent, reshackled to sin. And if you don't think it's possible for you to be saved, for you to be forgiven and then unforgiven, I would invite you to Matthew chapter 18. In fact, put your little thumb in Mark chapter 16 and go back about 50 pages to Matthew chapter 18. And notice the end of that text where Jesus teaches his most, and I use this word appropriately, damning parable. In Matthew 18, at the end of the chapter, Jesus teaches the parable of the unforgiven servant. The story goes like this, once upon a time, there was a master who had a servant that owed him a great sum of money and he could not pay. So he goes to his master and he begs and he pleads and he says, Master, please have mercy with me and I will eventually pay you all. And this master was so good and he was so kind and he was so compassionate that he said to this servant, I will forgive you the debt. Soak that in for a moment. He doesn't say you can pay me later. He doesn't say you can pay me in installments. He doesn't say you can just pay me half. He says, what debt? It's gone. I will forgive the debt. That's not the end of the story. That forgiven servant goes out, finds one of his fellow servants who owes him what in the modern equivalent would be $100. Now listen, $100 is not nothing for me, okay? But compared to a debt that is so astronomical, I could never fathom ever paying it like this guy owed his master originally, 100 bucks, not that big of a deal. But still, it's enough for him to want to do something about it. So he goes to his fellow servant who owes him 100 bucks, grabs him by the throat, starts shaking him violently and says, you pay me what you owe me. And then, like an echo from the past, he hears these words come out of the mouth of his fellow servant, have mercy with me and I will pay you all. And the odds of him being able to pay $100 are so much greater than the odds of this guy being able to pay back the debt he owed his master. And yet he had no compassion. He had no mercy. He had no love or patience. And he said, no, I will throw you into the debtor's prison until you could pay me back what you owe me. That's not the end of the story. Because this person who was forgiven of a debt, because he would not be forgiving. Pause. Do you remember the model prayer that we started with last night? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts 
as we forgive those who have debts to us. So here is this forgiven servant whose great unfathomable debt was forgiven, yet he would not be so generous with his fellow servant, throws him in prison. That's not the end of the story because when that master finds out that his servant was so careless and so callous and so unforgiving, he says in his anger, you take that forgiven servant and you throw him in prison until he can pay back all that he owes me. Whoa, wait a minute. That's not fair. I will have the audacity to say to God, because that's who this master is in the parable. That's not fair. You've already forgiven him that debt. No, there's no take backs. You can't unforgive somebody. And he says, you watch me. I will forgive you. And if you don't forgive him, your forgiveness is revoked. Everything you owed me that I said was forgiven, now it's all back on the table. And you don't get a second chance. Now you go to prison until you can pay it back. And we've already established he'll never pay it back. He will be in prison forever. What do you think that's a metaphor for? Don't tell me your forgiveness is locked in, baked in, and unchangeable, that you can just sin however you want. Just think about how blasphemous a doctrine that is, that once you're forgiven, you can sin however you want, and you've got God by the throat, and he's going to have to make you go to heaven, despite the fact that 30 seconds after you supposedly were saved, that you're going to you're going to live however you want to live. You're going to do whatever you want to do. And hey, God, too bad. I, I, I did the thing. So now you've got to let me in. Salvation is mine, not yours. And that is anti-biblical. Salvation is his. Amen. He gave you the gift. Amen. And if you aren't good with it, he's going to take it back. Amen. That's Matthew chapter 18. If you don't believe me, believe Matthew. Not this one. This one. Matthew 18, 24. Your forgiveness is revoked. Amen. And Jesus says, so shall my heavenly father do to you. If you do not, from your heart of mercy, forgive every one of your brothers his transgressors, I will do the same to you, Jesus says. Your forgiveness will be revoked. You will be condemned. You will depart from him. That's the other meaning of the word. Matthew 7, 21 through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't in your name do many wonderful works? And I will profess to them, I don't know you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And that's not the end of the statement. Then Jesus says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, he's like a man. Once upon a time, there was a man who built his house on the rock. And when the rains came down and the floods came up, the, rocks, the rocky house stood firm. And once upon a time, there was another man who was not so wise. He was very foolish. He built his house on the sand. And when the rains came down, the floods came up, the man's house went, you know the story, went splat. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, he will be like a wise man who hears the word of mine and obeys. Amen. And if you hear the word of mine and you do not obey, you are like a foolish man and you will be condemned and great will be the fall thereof. Think about how you and your stubborn unwillingness to obey the gospel makes wasted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's not wasted on me. I'm going to obey the gospel. I'm going to be faithful unto death. God willing, no matter what happens, if you take my head, you can't have my soul. I'm going to be faithful unto death. But if you don't obey the gospel, then for you, Jesus died for nothing. For you, he suffered for nothing. For you, he shed his blood for nothing. He loved you enough to come down here. And yet you will not obey the gospel. When John's message went out to all of Judea in Matthew chapter 3, people came from all over the countryside to hear his message and to be baptized by him in the river Jordan. Even Jesus, who had done no wrong to repent of, even Jesus traveled 80 miles from his home 
to the Jordan River to be baptized with John. Jesus traveled 80 miles to be baptized. I know people who won't walk 80 feet to be baptized in a warm baptistry, in a loving church building, surrounded by people who want to help them on the way. 80 feet! And yet that's the command of Jesus Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's not good for you. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Now, if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, you have heard what the message is. He lives. He reigns, and one day he will return. And when he does, he's going to come looking for those who have been faithfully obedient unto death. Is that you? If it is, then just hang on a little while longer and encourage those who are not. And if that's not you, let us encourage you before it is too late to repent of your sins, to believe him, to repent to him, to confess your faith in Him, to be baptized into Him, to live faithfully for Him, so that then when He comes back, you can live with Him forever and ever. Amen. If you have a need, please make it known right now. Please come as we stand and sing. Amen.